privacy is uh, something that we see as a, a human right in Europe, and, and but we also need a level of surveillance to keep us safe. And where do you strike that balance? And it's not a black and white issue. There are shades of grey. So the, the darker end of the spectrum, you have national security and you have protection from terrorism, which is fundamentally necessary to keep us all safe. At the other end of the spectrum, the lighter end of the spectrum, you have the sort of data collection happening daily by um, many of the... the Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. And today I have the pleasure of having in the studio with me, Bill Mew. Hi, Bill. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Des. Nice to speak to you. Thank you. I should admit this is our second attempt at getting this going because we had some technical issues. Uh, now, for folk who are listening, I'm in Sydney. It's around about uh, 20 past nine at night on a Friday evening, but it's uh, what coming up to lunchtime at your end, I think, is in, in London. It's still morning. It's about 10.20. Uh, the, the sun's uh, outside for a, 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 an unusual appearance here in the UK, but it's still fairly cold. Nice and warm, hopefully. Uh, we were talking earlier and it reminded me of the fact that I was actually in London a while back and we caught up for dinner and uh, I think you, I think we had steaks from memory just around the corner from where I was staying. Yeah, some really great steaks and some really great conversation. We uh, went well into the night and um, I think I made you eat a Chocolate Caramello Koala from Cadbury's Australia on camera for fun, which is pretty funny. You're a pretty good sport about that. I, I Always up for a laugh. Good man. Now, um, I want to dive into a, a bit of detail around something that we just saw you do. But before we do that, uh, you were on TV with uh, Russia Today talking about a couple of issues around um, the overturning of a UK law around data and data privacy and the relationship with data and privacy with the US. But before we get into that, let's just get to know you a little bit better. We were talking earlier on, and uh, there were a few things that I really, really found interesting about uh, some of your earlier years. So if you don't mind, can we just dive in to get to, get to know Bill Mew a little bit better? Uh, far away. Now, uh, so when we're talking, there was a couple of things that came up that really uh, uh, surprised me about your background. You, you said that one of your greatest influences in life was your dad. And uh, uh, from memory, you said that he uh, he raced Formula One cars, uh, was in sailing, and I think you said he was in the America's Cup, and he then got into skiing and was in a Winter Olympics. Uh, give us a bit of insight into that. Well, in the old days, uh, there used to be amateur sports person, and, and, and you used to be able to, as a, a really talented or, or enthusiastic amateur, do a whole load of different things. So it's not quite as professional as it is today, but um, you could do all sorts. But my dad literally... Uh, bought a race car. He had a small uh, garage as a, a, a hobby of his in, in the UK. And the mechanics from the garage used to be his pit crew. And they'd go and uh, qualify for Grand Prix. They'd go and turn up for uh, uh, the heats and get a place on the grid and go for it. And he held the Formula One lap record at Brands Hatch. And um, uh, you, you don't get much better than that. Uh, and sailing, he, again, had a really good go at it and um, uh, made the America's Cup team. Uh, and skiing, he was fairly good at that, although my sister would argue that she's eclipsed him because she, uh, she worked for the, for the British Winter Olympic team and everything. So uh, it's, it's, it was a real eye-opener from my perspective growing up that, um, that you shouldn't put boundaries there uh, and, and believe that you can't achieve things because actually if you apply yourselves, the, 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 there's, there's no horizon out there. You can go for it. You had a funny line around, uh, I think you... you uh, Termed along the phrase, I think it was uh, the difference between being uh, um, eccentric and a lunatic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 
Over here in the UK, uh, 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 being an eccentric is no inhibitor. It's sort of par for the course. Uh, uh, from afar, we may look like lunatics, but there's, there's a clear difference between a lunatic and an eccentric. A lunatic comes up with mad ideas but doesn't have the resources to follow through, whereas an eccentric, uh, typically, uh, uh, you have uh, some resources, cash, whatever, and you follow through on their ideas, and sometimes you can have some, some real glory, uh, some glorious failures or glorious successes, whichever, but um, uh, I'm all in favor of eccentricity. Well, speaking of eccentricity, um, uh, I'm going to bring up something that amused me greatly when I saw it uh, in one of your tweets and then blogs and your photos and then also a website about it. And then you told me about it over dinner and I realized you weren't joking, but uh, you built a castle in the middle of a lake with a moat and a drawbridge. And then I recently saw a video that you'd uh, video posted about uh, avoiding the zombie apocalypse of my V replies. Tell us how on earth you came to build a castle. Well, uh, we, we had an ambition. Uh, we always wanted to have uh, some uh, idyllic spot. It was very much a family con- collaboration. Uh, we bought an ex-hire bulldozer, ex-hire dumper truck. It took us about 10 years in this particular site, but we built a dam across the valley. We created a two-and-a-half-acre lake. We put pipes underneath the dam for hydroelectric power uh, on the islands that we created. We built a castle um, from scratch uh, with uh, spiral uh, stairs, t- turrets, uh, banquet hall, you name it. Uh, it's even got a, a remote-controlled drawbridge. Uh, so uh, we, 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 it was a modern take on a, a classic design. And the, the, there is the expression that every Englishman's home is his castle. Well, uh, we're living up to that particular uh, uh, example. I think that's pretty funny. I, I did enjoy your video the other day on Twitter uh, laughing about uh, avoiding the uh, social zombie apocalypse of my uh, video tweeters. That was very funny. I think I, I think I cried out loud at about 2 in the morning when I saw the thing and watched it about 20 times. Now, your career path is pretty interesting. Um, so let's cover a little bit about that because uh, there's a couple of things that came up in that that I really found interesting. Um, you, uh, from memory, you kicked off by, I think at the age of 18, you kicked off jumping into the Royal Navy and you were a weapons engineer officer. You played with things that went bang. Tell us about that. Absolutely. I mean, it was a real challenge as a young man. Um, I, I was one of the uh, youngest entrants in, in my uh, cadre of uh, officer trainees. Um, and I went in and I signed on at the age of 18 for 22 years. I, and, and I was absolutely sure that I knew what I was doing for life. Um, and uh, I, it, what really came home to me was how green I was at that particular moment in time. I was one of the youngest entries um, into the Royal Naval Academy, but at the same time, there were many people who had distinguished themselves in the ranks, uh, typically in the Falklands campaign that had only just finished, um, and they'd been nominate, nominated for officer training. So alongside me were some very hardened, um, experienced men in their mid-30s, and I was a very green 18-year-old. I needed to grow up in a hell of a hurry and it was a hell of an experience and boy did that teach me a lot well you you were going on to do um i think it was um olympic sailing and a couple of things uh, at the time um and yeah um, i I'd, I'd won a few national championships i'd been sailing an enormous i made the royal naval ocean racing team the royal naval dinghy racing team i'd hoped to go for for glory for gold um but uh, all this came to a little bit of an end when unfortunately uh, uh having been hyper fit fighting fit indeed i became very ill i got something called crohn's disease and ended up having a a year in hospital when I, it was touch and go and i really wasn't very well at all uh, I, I came through it at the very end when I had to sort of 
get back on my feet, uh, uh, learn to sort of uh, live and breathe again and, and actually create my life from scratch. I could not, couldn't go back into the Royal Navy because I certainly wasn't fighting fit anymore. Um, uh, my hopes of uh, glory uh, had, had evaporated uh, and indeed so had uh, my entire sort of career direction. So it was a case of starting again and again, a very big learning experience. What does it take to get, I mean, you know, we hear all kinds of things through life and I've certainly read some books about it, but I mean, in, in your experience, what does it, what does it take to kind of get from the point where you are at the lowest of lows and you've got to pick yourself up? What, 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 uh, what, what I, is it even I, like? It's down to a positive mental attitude. I, I happen to be in a very specialist hospital um, with a small number of people, no more than a sort of 25 or so. Um, too many of them were taken out of there in boxes. Uh, and, and too many of them weren't willing to talk or, or, or speak or whatever. I, I played practical jokes. I made the nurses' lives hell. I, uh, I was, uh, had the best positive mental attitude that there was, and I made the best recovery. And uh, many of the nurses, strangely enough, remember me, remember me fondly to this day. But uh, I mentioned my dad was a big inspiration to me. But one of the things he said to me uh, during the recovery phase was, Bill, you're not going to give up, are you? And <laughs> when somebody like my dad says that, you know, you're, I, there, there are some expectations. And I, I'm the kind of guy who's got a natural enthusiasm that, uh, you know, Jez, uh, that comes across. And, and uh, there was no way I was going to give up. I, I was just going to get on and get on with it. Yeah. And, and I, I guess, uh, as we were talking earlier on, you, you kind of phrased along the lines that it's a, a defining moment that, as you said, you've, you've actually physically got to get yourself out of bed, learn to walk again. And, and then have another go at life. And I guess at this stage, you're kind of out of the Navy, I'm assuming. Absolutely. I, I, I sort of had to sort of rethink. Uh, and I focused on one of the things that, that from my perspective, I, I'd always been somebody who'd been uh, a great communicator and trying to get me to stop talking is a challenge sometimes. Uh, and also a problem, <laughs> a problem solver. So, so I went into a lot of uh, uh, strategic advisory roles. A lot of it was around corporate communications. And I, I started out early in a PR agency doing work for Oracle, Apple, Compaq, Cisco, a whole load of the big technology firms. Uh, that did a, a brief stint working for John Major on his uh, election campaign, went on to work for, for British Telecom uh, uh, during some transformational time when they were trying to get into professional services, and then ended up at a, a company you may have heard of called IBM. I have noticed IBM on there. In fact, uh, I, I lost count of how many different uh, uh, roles and titles you had on IBM. So you've gone through the Navy, you've gone through Firefly uh, and an account director role. You've done some amazing things there. You've been through BT. Uh, tell us about the experience with IBM because there's some very big things that you did there. And, and you mentioned earlier that you sort of survived the GFC period and you led some of that. Uh, you talked about numbers like, um, I think from memory, you said something in the order of $26 billion with a turnover annually in the sectors you're in. Uh, give us a couple of minutes on that whole IBM experience and, and, and I guess, you know, what kind of formative experience that was uh, in, in light of what you're doing now. Oh, one of the glories of IBM was the caliber of the people that you worked with. I mean, IBM had great minds and great people doing great things. Um, and I, I went through the ranks and, and sort of managed to sort of stand out in certain different ways. And I, I, I ended up in a role uh, at a, a senior leadership uh, role, largely in communications. And I led the finance sector for IBM. Now, uh, for those who don't know IBM well, the finance sector uh, at the time was about 26 billion in revenue for IBM. It was about a quarter of IBM's business and it accounted for almost all of IBM's profit. Um, and it was the blue ribbon bit of the business and built a largely in a lot of its main, main, mainframe heritage, but a lot of the, the software that keeps uh, the uh, uh, wheels of commerce turning. 
Um, uh, I happened to be there at a time when we were really doing some innovative things in fintech, and IBM was the global leader in fintech by revenue. Um, and uh, there was an enormous amount on the positive side that we're doing. But unfortunately, during my tenure, there was also a, a little bit of a blip. Uh, there was a, a slight financial crisis, and uh, there was a lot of nuanced communications around that time because um, obviously it wasn't the technology at fault because we've been advocating user risk management systems for some time, uh, but it's the way that many of those had been implemented and integrated in, in some of the banks. But at the same time, we couldn't be out there sort of pointing the finger at our own clients, so uh, it took some fairly nuanced communications to explain to the world what had exactly gone wrong. Yeah, it was an interesting period of the world. And for the greater part, Australia really didn't experience it because we uh, we tapped into some gold reserves and sold that to China and other places and, and topped up the kitty. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, the UK definitely, I mean, obviously America got smashed, but the UK certainly had some pain. So you did a, a stint at um, uh, Compare the Cloud, then you ended up where you are now in UK Cloud, where I understand you've been there for a couple of years in strategy roles, but Currently, you're effectively whole of market, but with a focus on, I think you said it was public sector and health. Is that right? Yeah, no, um, we, we decided that um, uh, there was a massive need for digital transformation in the public sector. And the arrival of UK cloud on the scene was uh, uh, enormously well-timed. Um, the government had been overly reliant on a, a small number, a sort of oligopoly of uh, technology suppliers with legacy technology, a big monolithic engagements. Many of them were just weren't delivering value. Um, the whole ethos of cloud is being uh, more nimble, sort of uh, uh, more uh, flexible and actually re- returning a better value. And we were the first on the scenes in this particular market. And we were actually able to change the market. And uh, even as, uh, as recently as 2016, we were the, fast, the single fastest growing technology company in the UK. And as the, the, the UK started to transform its public sector, we were one of the, the, the key players here with the largest share of, of uh, cloud hosts. And, and cloud services in the UK, in the, particularly in the public sector. Um, and uh, we helped the UK government to, uh, achieve on, only last year uh, recognition by the United Nations as being the single uh, or the, the leading number one uh, e-government in the world. Wow. What, um, you know, what does a day in the life of Bill New um, as a cloud strategist at UK uh, Cloud look like? Um, there's an enormous amount of evangelism. That's a a big part of my role. Um, But uh, there is so much good that we're doing as a a, a small innovative. I mean, we're we're only 200 people in this company, um, but we're really uh, 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 breaking new ground. We're providing multi-cloud services across a a VMware platform, uh, which is the largest multi-tenant VMware platform in Europe. We've uh, uh, got a a, a recent Azure stack. We've got an Oracle cloud estate. We've got an OpenStack, and even we've got a sort of Kubernetes estate based on Red Hat OpenShift. Uh, And we've uh, achieved awards across the spectrum. But we see the future being multi-cloud. People need choice. People have got a a heterogeneous environment of different workloads and different legacy systems. And they need to move all of that or as much of that as they can to the cloud in order to create the efficiencies and the digital transformation that is actually going to change government. Because there aren't any governments out there that are swimming in money. They're all sort of finding it difficult to make any meat. Uh, And the, the answer to most of that is digital transformation. And we're here to make that happen. Yeah, there's you know there's a lot of learning still to be done around the world, but I think 
you know, often there's this, this uh, joke being uh, thrown around that, you know, there is no cloud, there's just other people's computers, but it's not so much uh, a, a technology component as it is a, a way of thinking or a, a business model, isn't it? The, the, at the end of the day, it's the, you know, as a service approach, whether it's infrastructure or platform or software or service or, or the more, I guess, um, verticals of database as a service and security as a service or, you know, firewalls as a service. It's more about, uh, you, and, and you just touched on it then, it's that's the whole multi-cloud hybrid model of, you know, on-prem, off-prem, private, public, et cetera. Um, but whatever you use, it's, it's consumed as a service. I think one of the things I heard you talk about recently, and I think it was one of your uh, public t- uh, speaking gigs that I saw online recently, um, you specifically highlighted the the change in thinking that's required, not just in government, in consuming things uh, as a service. And, and, and I, I often talk about it in the sense that, you know, when I go and turn on the tap and get a glass of water, I expect it to be there. I expect it to be uh, quality water. I expect it to be clean. I don't want any giardia in it or any bacteria. Um, I only want to pay for it as I use it and when I use it, but I expect it to be there 24-7 all the time at that quality. Um, and that's kind of how I describe cloud. But I think you kind of delved into it a bit more around the just the transition and the thinking and the approach that businesses need to take and government needs to take of how do you consume things as a service when you've potentially had a, a background of three to five year procurement of hardware and, and maintenance contracts. Yeah, I mean, there, there are some cultural issues here and we, we can't get away from the cultural issues um, because uh, the, the strange thing about um, the government sector, certainly in the UK, which people wouldn't understand unless you actually worked in this sector, is that all the C-level people in most of the, the government departments are, are career civil servants and, and they move from a department to department and, and, and they're very good at what they do, but they don't necessarily have technical technology skills, that those are in short supply. Uh, many of them have a sort of IT director or sort of CIO type role, but typically those roles are on limited contracts for one or two years, and therefore you don't get a longevity, and therefore uh, uh, there was an over-reliance on large service providers to do everything from them, which actually hollowed out the, the internal skills in those companies so that when we came to procurement, the government wasn't even particularly effective as defining their requirements in technology terms and setting out those contracts. And the government got tied into enormous um, uh, projects and enormous contracts with, with some of the large suppliers, that many of which failed and didn't deliver value. The game changer, uh, uh, largely at the time that we came in, was the arrival of the coalition government that had no money and had to do things differently. And we were there at the time to help them do something differently. And we uh, classed ourselves as the, 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 the challenges in the market. We were easy to adopt easy to use and easy to leave. We, we, we were not going to have any lock-in. There's no uh, technological lock-in because we use uh, 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 technologies that are widely adopted elsewhere. Um, there's no contractual lock-in. You can stop using us and the billing will stop that out. And um, uh, uh, we're easy to adopt. We'll help you help you get there. So it is very much that sort of utility approach or your, your water tap that you were describing. Now, there's an interesting piece that comes up with this, and, and it leads me nicely into the next question I've got with regard to a TV appearance I recently saw you participate in and, and tweet, um, and that is the protection of data and data privacy and the laws around that and, and the flow on the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation coming out of the uh, European Union, aka EU. Uh, you were on Russia Today uh, recently talking about this whole topic. Uh, how did that come about? And Tell us a bit about that. 
Um, I've been a big evangelist in the market on a whole series of different topics, and, and one of them around is around privacy, where um, obviously we have a, a very a, a strong viewpoint. Um, but the 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 thing that had happened that day was that the government's what is termed here or, or re often referred to as the snoopers charter uh, the investigatory powers act had been challenged in the court as being too far reaching um, uh, there had been previously challenges in the court and we, the government had been told that it needed to ensure that there were the right safeguards and the, these safeguards were mandatory. The government had made some promises and some steps in this direction, but this was another finding uh, against them. And uh, this comes down to a sort of a, a really fundamental issue here is that, I mean, obviously, privacy is uh, something that we see as a, a human right in Europe, and, and but we also need a level of surveillance to keep us safe. And where do you strike that balance? And it's not a black and white issue. There are shades of grey. So the, the darker end of the spectrum, you have national security and you have protection from terrorism, which is fundamentally necessary to keep us all safe. At the other end of the spectrum, the lighter end of the spectrum, you have the sort of data collection happening daily by um, many of the, 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 the large um, online social media uh, concerns that um, are using that sort of data to profile you and, and, and do this where you give them that data uh, and get expect some service in return. In the middle ground, there is where do we draw the line? And, and the focus in this particular case was around what they term a serious crime. Now, if, if you draw the line for serious crime as, as something that is like a, covers a, a three-year prison sentence and therefore is pretty serious, then there's a set of data and a set of people that you need to focus on. And the government is trying to change that boundary to only six months, which would capture a whole load more people. And one of the things that they do under this particular um, rule is that they uh, ask all of the uh, social media providers, the ISPs and the, the telcos, to collect two years' worth of data so that that's available at any moment in time to be examined if they need to go and, uh, and do some sort of uh, analysis. Right. Um, how do you govern the access to that sort of very precious, very private information? Um, and the arguments here was that the government was suggesting some sort of uh, um, ombudsman to, to, to oversee that. Uh, and the complaint was around the fact that uh, the ombudsman suggested wasn't a judicial body. There was no effective judicial supervision. There was very little uh, mechanisms for redress. Um, and these are the sort of uh, safeguards that uh, simply weren't adequate. And they're also the sort of safeguards that are built into a new regulation called GDPR, which is coming on the horizon. It will be implemented in May of this year on a European-wide basis. And not only are they implementing that in continental Europe, we've chosen to implement it in the UK as well because we recognize there needs to be a level of regulatory alignment in order for us to trade effectively because goods will go in one direction. They may be digital goods, they may be physical goods. Money will come back in, in response to pay for those things. But data needs to go in both directions in order for trade to be effective. They need to have some records around your name and address and all sorts of different things around you. Yeah, well, and this goes back, I mean, uh, I forget the exact year, but in the early 2000s, the UK passed a draft communications data bill uh, that sort of effectively became the, the Snoopers Charter from memory. And then I think back in November 2016, they brought in this thing called the Investigatory Powers Act uh, of 2016 uh, that sort of defined it a bit better. And I think it still kept the moniker of, of the Snoopers Act, but there was a slightly different uh, uh, 
act that was brought into parliament. There was also a, a separate one, I think, that there was a, um, I, I, can't, I think it might have been appealed or there is an appeal against it um, called the Data Retention and Investigatory Powers Act. Um, was it Dripper, they called it in the end, which I think yeah, got I, merged that, into that, one thing. Not- yeah, DRIPO has been overturned and the Investigative Powers Act has largely replaced that. And right. the current challenge was against the earlier act, in fact. Um, but it has ramifications um, because if, if when I go back to talking about where we draw the line uh, and the shades of grey, if we're drawing the line in a different place from where they do in Europe, then when we come to Brexit, and Brexit's happening, whether we like it or not, and there's some people who do, some people who don't, um, but Brexit is, is coming. And if on Europe, they set their GDPR up within a certain shade of grey, and we've got a different shade of grey here in the UK, um, then at some point, the people in, uh, in Europe may turn to us and say, well, you're no longer GDPR compliant in our eyes. Uh, and therefore, that may sort of have some sort of impact on our ability to share data, which is fundamental importance. Um, now, this is one of the, everyone focuses on the Brexit negotiations and the trade negotiations, but there needs to be a level of data sharing to make any post-Brexit um, uh, environment effective as well. Uh, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I have clients here in Australia in the financial services industry sector or FSI space, as we call it. And uh, I have some on both sides of the fence. I've got some who are in panic mode because they they probably left it a bit late, like Y2K. And I've got others that have got teams of 60 external lawyers uh, uh, and consultants working on it, and and they say they're okay with it, and they're acquiring companies in the same space around the world and and bringing them into the same model. I think one of the things I'm I'm curious about, though, is, um, I mean, Brexit's coming, uh, you know, GDPR is coming. Uh, it's it's May this year, um, either 25th, 28th. I can't remember now that GDPR comes into play. I mean, it's effectively been in place for about a year now, but it hasn't had any teeth to to fine you with. But we've had the, some of the stuff in place before. We've had the EU US Data Shield of some time, and and the Swiss added sort of their little piece to it with the Swiss EU US Data Shield. Germany's had data protection for some time. Uh, Australia's had it since as early as 1918. We've had a privacy component um, effectively built into uh, uh, federal law, and it's been updated quite frequently. In the establishment of free trade agreements, this often becomes part of the foundational component of it. Uh, I know in the TPP, before that was sort of uh, exited by uh, the US in particular, a large part of the TPP was about uh, how do we do trade and how do we exchange data around that, not necessarily at the level of GDPR. Is it the case we're being distracted by uh, the, um, I guess, media focus on on the US and, and EU in particular um, when other parts of the world like China and Australia and New Zealand and others, and, and certainly the, the, the block of 54 nations in, in Africa and the, and, and the 1.1 billion people there and the 1.3 billion people in India and 1.5 billion people in China, who for many part, most part, as far as I can tell, they're just getting on with it. I mean, Australia has a free trade agreement with China. Uh, we have a free trade agreement with Japan. Uh, we've got a free trade agreement with Korea. And for the most part, we've taken care of, of, of those components that GDPR probably is a little more stringent with. Uh, what's your take on kind of the, the situation that the, the US sort of UK EU uh, uh, challenge you're facing now um, in the context of what the rest of the world's doing, just getting on with it? Um, you, you're right. Um, uh, trade needs to occur. And as I said earlier, a, a key component of trade is, is the data sharing. Um, now, um, I, I've been working very recently with a guy called Max Schrems, who was brought a challenge against Facebook that 
brought down um, Safe Harbor and then it was replaced by Privacy Shield and there are various different challenges at at the moment. But Privacy Shield exactly, in, in particular is a framework for this kind of data sharing between Europe, including uh, the Swiss who've joined in, and the US. Um, and it comes back to some of the safeguards I was talking about that came up in a discussion we had earlier about the UK. Um, the problem in America is that the emphasis is more on surveillance than it is around privacy. And in Europe, there is privacy is a human right. We take it very seriously. Um, uh, the, the current administration in the US, uh, I love them or loathe them, and, I'm, and I'll, I'll leave that to the Americans to decide, um, that the current administration has chosen to change the uh, uh, privacy mandate such that privacy now only applies to US citizens. Uh, they've specifically uh, excluded non-US citizens. So you guys in Australia, us in Europe, we no longer have the same privacy protections when our data is transferred to the US, and that is a, of concern to us. Then you may need to look at some of the um, concerns that have been raised by uh, a group called the work, the, the Group 29, Article 29 uh, uh, Group Working Party, which has, uh, uh, as its members, all the data protection authorities across Europe. And they've raised serious concerns about um, a Privacy Shield, mainly around the same issues that I just touched on earlier, which were around uh, uh, supervision and redress. Um, and in the US, they don't seem to have the mechanisms in place for effective redress. Um, and the supervision is also of concern because there is a, an ombudsman in the US for supervising the, the privacy and the sort of privacy shield arrangement. But no one has been appointed to that role. I mean, there are a number of different roles in the current administration in the US which, which are laying vacant. And these are one of them. And that is obviously of enormous concern to us. So uh, from our perspective, um, when the rest of the world is looking on, they need to look at sort of which sort of framework that they're going to roughly align to in a lot of their um, trade arrangements. Um, GDPR is catching a lot of headlines, and most of the headlines are around the fines more than anything. Um, and I, but I think those are in some ways a distraction. Um, uh, or are they going to align more to the US model? I, I think actually GDPR is a really constructive framework which actually sets out the privacy ro uh, rules really well and uh, actually it is a it's a discipline that many companies in their um, treatment of a private data should be taking seriously and, and you wouldn't actually do yourselves any harm aligning to GDPR because it is a, a, a great structure and it actually sets out a really um, professional a way of approaching privacy um, that is one of the most stringent and well recognized and, and, and now being implemented by many companies around the world purely because of its introduction here in Europe. Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, there's, I think there's still some learning to be done about it, though. And, and that is that, you know, Australia, for example, has had a, a trade agreement with Singapore uh, that, that I think the most recent uh, update to the agreement was in 2005. And there's very, very particular uh, frameworks around electronic commerce, so much so that even back then in, in the early 2000s, uh, they were very strict about documenting specific elements around compatibility and interop interoperability of dig digital signatures and data SSL certificates. So, I think you're right that GDPR is going to give us a good framework, but at the same time, I argue that um, there is a lot of distraction around what's happening with the US and, and what they may or may not want to do. Um, and when they pulled out of, of the TPP, for example, uh, nobody else in the TPP stopped. And, and I think there's an interesting wake-up call for certain parts of the world 
when GDPR comes along, I don't think Australia is going to struggle to deal with it. I certainly know that, that the likes of most African and Indian and, and certainly most Asian region nations are going to cope nicely because we already operate under very stringent privacy acts of various forms and we also interoperate nicely. So I don't think GDPR is going to sink us. Um, that probably segues me to something before we wrap up um, that I'd like to do with this. And that is that on the basis that, that, you know, there's plenty of homework that we can do outside of this, but Australia and a number of other nations freely trade, they freely exchange data. And, and so far, I'm pretty comfortable with what Australia is doing with the likes of Korea and Japan and Singapore and China with free trade agreements and, and intellectual property protection and certainly electronic commerce and data exchange and privacy uh, that's associated if I was to hand you a crystal ball uh, just before we wrap up, if I say, you know, here, Bill, here's a crystal ball in a virtual sense, I'd like you to gaze into it. In your view, and, and, and you've got, you know, you're on the bleeding edge of the stuff, you're on TV with it. Um, where are we in 12 to 18 months with this whole challenge? And not so much just the US, but on a global scale. If we think beyond kind of the, the UK, EU, US piece of it, um, does the world just get on with it and do it themselves and wait for the US in particular to catch up? Or does the US become so disruptive that we've all got to take a pause and, and, and readjust uh, as we did with the GFC? Where do you see us being um, in a year, a year at a year and a half's time? Okay, there, there, there are several layers to this. First of all, if we look at the, this fundamental technologies we're all using, I, I think we're moving, and, and many people have seen this, we're moving to a multi-cloud world. Um, and that's a lot of what my, I do in my day job. Um, but on top of that, we actually, we're seeing cloud mature. So that it's becoming uh, a far more focused on the business value rather than the speeds and feeds and the technology. Um, and you see the same sort of maturity curve for any technology. And as these technologies mature, they started to be applied more, far more closely to the client. So you need to get close to your client. You need to understand what your clients do in order to provide real value. That's why we're a specialist in a particular couple of sectors, government technology and, and health tech, so that we can live and breathe those, those sectors. Right. You're going to start to see that around the world. Now, one of the ramifications for that is if you're that much closer to your customer and you're operating in a number of different countries, well, you possibly need to have a, a different operation or a slightly different approach in the UK or in France or in Germany or in Singapore or in Australia. And actually, maybe you need to hold that data locally. And actually, that wouldn't be a bad thing because actually then you are protecting yourself as a later sort of some sort of regulatory schisms around privacy or whatever. And you take uh, Russia, for example, where uh, they have mandated that data on Russian citizens needs to be held in that country. Well, actually, if you're able to have a sort of federated multi-cloud environment, that shouldn't be impossible. You can operate as a single in-country that are much closer to their clients that understand that they are in touch and understand the local market. And obviously, you can do a level of analytics uh, between the different federated cloud environments. Uh, and if you're a com uh, an operation such as a government department in the UK that um, uh, uh, only operates in the UK, why would you ever take data offshore? Why would you need to? Why would you that have that complication? Why would you face that risk? So, you know, you need to use a, a local player. Well, I mean, I can suggest a local player to the guys here <laughs> working <laughs> in, in government sector and healthcare in this country. But, but the same Funny applies that. elsewhere. It same applies yeah. elsewhere. I mean, you need to be close as your client. You need to be uh, in tune. You need to be serving them more closely in each of the different markets. And, and that's how we're going to see cloud mature. Um, you, in terms of all of this data sharing across the world, where you need to do that, you just need to be aware of the regulations. And, and I don't think the difference in cultural attitude between Europe and America is going to change anytime soon. I mean, we, we fundamentally see here in Europe 
privacy is a human right. And in the US, there is very definitely a different attitude and it is more surveillance oriented. Now, things may become better aligned in the future. There may be changes in attitude, but I don't see that happening soon. So we just need to deal with that. We just need to understand that there are going to be different regulatory frameworks. Right. And if we're focused on our clients and we're focused on catering for the local markets and getting it right for, the, for whichever clients we're serving in each country, that shouldn't matter to us. We just need to abide by the regulations and provide great service. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, I, I, I love that. And, and we'll wrap up on that. I think there's a lot of growing up to be done in, in uh, many of the cloud unicorns. I think there's, you know, we've seen the Ubers and, 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 and other brands, you know, Facebook and, and PayPal and eBay and, and, and many others. And when, I'm not picking on any of them, but the Twitter's the world. Uh, and, you know, there's a whole range of issues around, you know, whether they pay tax in each nation, whether they protect data in there. In Australia, you can't put government data in, in most of the public clouds. Uh, there's only about five that are technically approved for everything and some are only approved for certain services. I think you're right. I think there's a lot of maturing to be done in the space. Uh, it's a given that we're going to be multi-cloud. We're going to be hybrid cloud with on and off-prem. Uh, there's probably just a, a segment or a sector of, of cloud providers who have potentially uh, been very bullish and, and, and growing at an exponential rate uh, and been focused on that growth in technology and, and the business and market acquisition that maybe just need to take a breath and, and catch up with those laws and regulations you're talking about. So, Bill, thanks so much for uh, spending half an hour with us. It's been really, really interesting to get some insight into you personally. And thanks so much, so much detail on that. And uh, I look forward to getting you back on the show real soon again. Hey, Des, it's been a pleasure. Um, we, we always tune in to hear uh, some of your chats. I'm happy to, to, to tune in and maybe take, take part another time.